Revelation chapter 2 this morning as we make our way through the book of Revelation. Paul read for us earlier to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, these things says the son of God who has eyes like flames of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, your love, service, faith, and your patience. And as far as your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds." I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not hold to this doctrine, and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter vessel shall be broken to pieces. As I also receive from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now I've been repetitive on this first point, but again that's how we learn. Uh, Like Daniel, Revelation is divided into three different sections. The key to the book, again, is chapter 1, verse 19. Just flip back a page. And again, the first division. John's on the island of Patmos. The year is about 96 AD. And he sees a vision of Jesus. And the Lord tells him, in verse 19, John write the things which you have seen, all right? That's chapter one. He sees a picture of the Lord walking among the seven golden lampstands, holding seven stars in his hand. And then he says, write the things which are, which is present tense. John was living in the church age. Uh, It began at Pentecost, which was just last week, as far as the calendar goes. And uh, chapters two and three, that's the section we're in right now. Chapters two and three um, comprise uh, where we are right now. We're studying the one, two, three, the fourth church. And then the third division of the book is write the things that are after this. After what? Well, there is a seven-year period of time, at least, after the rapture of the church, that takes us into um, chapters six through 16. And basically, it's got a lot of different names, um, and we go through them all the time. I like the time of Jacob's trouble the best because it's Jewish. It's also called Daniel's 70th week because it's all about Israel, not about the church. The church is in heaven in chapters four and five. And uh, it's also called the the great indignation. Jesus called it the tribulation, a time 
that has never been and uh, in the past, and it'll never be like it in the future. It is literally, according to Revelation 6, I think it's verse 17, the wrath of the Lamb. And it's God's wrath being poured out on a world that has rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there's a, those are the three divisions. Again, we find ourselves this morning studying the church of Thyatira, And this morning as we look at the church of Thyatira, we will look at it from four different divisions for those of you who like to categorize things. Number one, it's beginning. Number two, it's doctrine. Number three, it's fate. And number four, the promises that are made to it. The church at Thyatira is representative of Romanism, which takes us into the Dark Ages from 590 AD to approximately 1000 AD. It was a very dark period of time. When you leave Pergamum, I'll come back to Pergamum in just a bit because we studied that last week, you begin to move inland. And remember we made the point, John was on Patmos, when he got to... um, the first of the seven churches, he ran into Ephesus because it's a port city. And then it's clockwise from there. All these other cities that we're going to read about, um, as we get to Thyatira, we're now going inland for the first time. So when you leave Pergamon, you begin to go and move inland. Thyatira was uh, the remaining three churches are all inland. And Thyatira was also situated in a very beautiful location. The city became prosperous under the um, sponsorship of Vespasian, uh, the Roman emperor. Uh, It was a headquarters for many ancient guilds, like potters and tanners and weavers and robe makers and dyers guild. It was the center of the dyeing industry. Now when I say that, I'm talking about dying colors in the clothes. Um, I'll be reading Acts 16, 14 about Lydia in just a little bit. But Lydia, the seller of purple, who in Philippi became Paul's first convert in Europe, came from here. The purple color spoken of, what is today known as turkey red, and it's really red, the dye was taken from a plant that grows in that area. Apollo, the sun god, was worshipped here uh, at Thyatira. If you're taking notes, um, the first mention of Thyatira comes from Acts chapter 16, verse 14. It says, a certain woman named Lydia heard us, and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God, and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The other thing I'll mention as introduction, if you go to verse 25, when we look at um, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, these last four, if you look at verse 25, we have something different from uh, the first three, and that's this statement. Hold fast until I come it gives the impression that when the Lord comes back, this church is going to be 
in existence, along with Philadelphia, along with Sardis, and along with Laodicea. There's a similar statement made that gives the impression, and we had it up on screen a couple weeks ago, that these four, and what, what I'm saying very broadly, I'm saying anybody that calls himself a Christian, okay, and we're going to have four different types of Christian organizations that call themselves Christians. And um, this is the first, Thyatira, because it implies here that they're to keep doing what they're doing until the Lord actually comes. So with that much being said, um, we have in verse 18 uh, the title that Jesus chooses for this particular church. And we made the point that the title that the Lord chooses for himself to address that particular church is really the issue that he has with that particular church. And there's only two where nothing bad is said at Smyrna and Philadelphia. I'll be talking about Philadelphia this morning. Nothing bad is said. Uh, the rest um, he has problems with. And he, he, he addresses, tells them what to do and how to do it. To me, uh, of all of the, the warnings, this one here is most critical and scary because of what he says and what they're into. And I'll, I'll develop that thought as we go over here this morning. But the title that the Lord uses of himself here is the picture of the Son of God in judgment. His eyes are like flames of fire. Uh, searching them out and his feet like fine brass brass is always symbolic of judgment uh, which represents judgment and Christ is judging the church remember the serpent on the pole well it was brass and that's where sin was judged so we have here the idea that the Lord is going to bring judgment unless they repent He warns them of his concerns. But before he gets into the nevertheless and the warning, he commends them. And in verse 19, he says, I know your works, your love, service, faith in your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Um, We're talking about Romanism here. And what we have in view, as I'll lay out more as we're going through is as we look at the four different kinds of Christianity in the world today, over one billion in the world are called Roman Catholics. And that's where we're headed this morning. So don't get up and leave yet or wait till you get home if you don't like the Bible study and send me emails then, okay? Because I usually get them. But if we're gonna go chapter by chapter and verse by verse, we're gonna call spades spades. We're going to call white, white, and we're going to call black, black. And I can't pull punches when we get to this particular church and who it represents um, and how it plays into. Um, It's so late, um, a little teaser. Right before we go to the promises, I'm going to show you two short video clips. And I'll tell you a little bit about them now just just so that you can see where I'm going with this study. When we get to Revelation 17 and 18, we're clearly told there's, there's going to be a one-world religion. Amen? And we know that there's going to be a one-world government. 
So the two video clips that I'm going to show you, one is um, Pope Francis speaking to the World Government Council Summit that met in 2019. They meet every year in Dubai. There's over 200 people that speak at this thing. And I have a video of Pope Francis live streaming himself in. Now, they're there for one reason. They want a world government. Over 200 of the leading business people, even Harrison Ford was in there. And all I could think of was, Andy, Andy, Andy. (laughs) Come on. (sighs) Okay, that's one, and that will deal with a one-world government. And when he'll be speaking from Rome, and there will be subtitles. But you got to watch his wording, because he's identifying with them and encouraging them, but he's very, very tactful on how he's going about doing it. The second one is um, the Pope actually visiting last year the United Arab Emirate, and they had 180,000 people show up. Half of them were Muslim. And um, I have footage of both of it because I think the impact of actually showing it to you will leave that impact. And so it leads to a very simple question. If it's as late as we think that it is, and as Sarah said earlier, when you see these things begin to happen, okay? And it's a simple question. We're either seeing them or we're not. And I'm getting more sidetracked than I wanted to with that. But let's get back to their good works. To their credit, I've traveled the world. Um, I think of Mother Teresa in uh, India. They are known. Um, and when we get to Revelation 17, it says they're on every waters of the world. Roman Catholicism uh, is worldwide. And to their credit, the Lord commends them. And they are responsible for hospitals, for orphanages, for feeding the poor. And that's a track record that they have, standing up against abortion. Uh, These are trademarks of Roman Catholicism, to their credit. And the Lord commends them. The words of commendation, there are six of them here. Um, He acknowledges their works are actually credentials of true believers. Now, I'm going to make this distinction a couple times this morning. It talks about those who do not hold this doctrine that are actually in Thyatira. And having said that, people are wondering, well, are all Catholics condemned? And the answer to that is no. I know people who do not believe the doctrine that for whatever reason still will go to a Catholic church. They don't believe in purgatory, they don't play the, the rosary, and they don't get into all the extra things. They know that they're saved by grace through faith, and they hold to that. And you know people who know and love the Lord uh, that can be Episcopalian, um, whatever, fill in the blank. A lot of them know the Lord, a lot of them don't. Good place for an amen. Amen. So don't misunderstand me because the Lord clearly says there's always in this chapter that don't hold to it. He says, hang in there. Be faithful. And, and then, I'll, then we get into the promises. What I like about this is he goes, the first one is love. 
Um, And then the last thing he says, and the last more than the first. The last works are more than the first. In this church, works increased rather than diminished. So he's commending them. And then we have this big nevertheless. And I'll read verse 20, and we'll go back to 1 Kings. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach to beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality. I'm gonna lead towards more of when we talk about the immorality here from a doctrinal sense rather than a physical sense. It's, I, I see this as sexual immorality, but more importantly, the doctrine. So I call it um, spiritual immorality as a bigger issue than a sexual one here. And to eat things sacrificed to idols. So it raises the question, who is Jezebel? Let's go to 1 Kings. Everybody turn with me, please, to chapter 16. And um, do a quick overview of where she comes on the scene. Elijah, we're gonna be getting sidetracked talking about Elijah and the prominent role he's gonna play past and still future. So if you're in 1 Kings 16, um, Jezebel had brought paganism into the northern kingdom of Israel. And evidently there was in a local church at Thyatira a woman who had a reputation as a teacher and prophetess who was the counterpart of Jezebel, who was Ahab's wife. So who is Jezebel? Well, she married, she was not Jewish, and she introduced the worship of Baal, which is doctrine, into Israel. And Ahab went along with it. And concerning uh, the historical period of the Dark Ages, what the Church of Thyatira represents, Pagan practice, idolatry, were mingled with Christian works and worship. All right, chapter 16, let's look at verse, oh, probably, now I'm going to pick it up, 16, let's look at 29. The sin of Ahab. In the 28th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, noticed more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing of him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Nebat, uh, son of Nebat, that he took his wife Jezebel. So this is where she arrives on the scene. The daughter of Ithbal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshiped him. So he marries Jezebel, and he's a worshiper of Baal, now it's this. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab had made wooden images. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings who were before him because of this 
relationship. In the days of Hael of, of Bethel, he built Jericho. He laid its foundation with uh, Abimram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up the gates according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Joshua, the son of Nun. All right. As we look at the first verse of chapter 17, we find that Elijah, all right, Elijah is a prophet during this time, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. He says to the king Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew or rain these days until I say so. So the confrontation begins. Um, the challenge is on in this first verse. And what we have now is a period of three and a half years. Jesus said it was three and a half years, and I'm actually going to take you to the, uh, the book of James, and James reaffirms that that was the length of time. So this is a little diversion here, but I want to keep working in the Old Testament with the book of Revelation, and this is one of the places that it's very, very clear that that's what's happening. All right, go to chapter um, 18, and we're looking at verses one through four. Now it came to pass after many days, well, the many days are exactly three and a half years, or as we're gonna see in Revelation, 1,260 days. It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house, and now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was while Jezebel, notice, massacred the prophets of the Lord. She not only introduces the idolatry of Baal worship, but she is going around systematically murdering the prophets of Israel. And Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hid hid them in a couple of caves, 50 to a cave, and he fed them with bread and water. Jezebel wants them all gone. But this one guy, Obadiah, takes a hundred of them and he takes care of of them for this period of time. Now if you look at verse 20, we find um, it finally comes down to the showdown on verse 20 where it's a challenge. It's Elijah's challenge to Ahab. If Baal is God, great, let's worship Baal. But if God is God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then let's worship him. And why don't we put this little contest together? You bring your 450 prophets of Baal, and then I'll show up, and we'll have a contest. Um, I I wanna take you to this beautiful place, because some of you have never been or probably will never get the opportunity to go to Israel. Verse 20 says, so all the children of uh, Israel gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. I'm gonna take you to Mount Carmel right now. Here we go. Isn't that beautiful? If you look right down at the very bottom of it, 
eventually these 400 prophets are going to get killed down by this brook that's mentioned. What you're looking at is the Jezreel Valley from the very top of Mount Carmel. You're looking east, and this is on top. This is a place we go every year, and we go up on this platform, and that's the view that we have. Directly across this valley is the city of Nazareth, and we'll go directly south of here is Megiddo. So we go to Megiddo, then we drive across the Jezreel Valley, and we go up to Nazareth, and the thing that really blows my mind is Jesus was from Nazareth. So we go to a place called the precipice because they wanted to throw him off a cliff and we have a, we have a Bible study there and this unbelievable view that's there and the Bible really does come to life. Um, so you're looking east right now. This is where the battle of Armageddon someday will be fought. Now, if you were on the same platform, instead of looking that way to um, the east and you would look west, well, you'd see the Mediterranean Sea because Mount Carmel is very close to Haifa, which is a port area. It's where they discovered all this um, natural gas that has now made Israel independent, if you will, of any, any energy problems that they might have had. They also found oil. Um, uh, which I've been saying as many years as I can remember, uh, always chiding my uh, tour guide friend Zev. I said, have they found the oil yet? He says, there's no oil. The, the Lord gave the oil to all the Arabs, but he gave us Israel. And I said, one of these days, Zev, you're gonna see. <laughs> well, I'm really on him right now with this one. He doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> so we have... If we, we would look this way, this is going to come into this story, and that's why I want to point it out. You have that looking that way, and the Mediterranean Sea looking this way. And on a clear day, you can just see the sea forever. So imagine being up, Mediterranean over here, the Valley of Jezreel there. By the way, from this particular spot, it is exactly 184 miles to Petra, to the mile. And that gets into the furlongs talked about in the book of Revelation. And um, that's when we get to that part of the book of Revelation, we'll develop that thought more. So we have, on, you can leave that up for a while because it's so pretty. So uh, let's look at verses 21 through 24. Here's Elijah's challenge. Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left of the prophets of the Lord. Now this isn't true. We'll find out later that there's 7,000 who did not bow the knee. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose which one they want cut them in pieces and lay it on the wood, but don't put any fire under it, and I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And then you call on your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people said, sounds good, let's do it. 
So I'm not gonna read the rest of this except to say you guys get to go first. And um, so they started in the morning, verse 26, and it went till noon, crying out to Baal. At noontime, Elijah uh, sarcastically begins to chide and mock them. Well, maybe he's meditating or maybe he's busy. You can use your imagination on that one. Or he's on a journey. Maybe he's taking a nap and you guys need to wake him up. So they become very Pentecostal at this point. And verse 28 and they began to cut themselves and jump up and down, and uh, blood was gushing out, and this happened. And by verse 29, the crowd is bored to tears. It says no one paid attention. And so Elijah said, all right, you guys had your chance. My turn. And he took and he rebuilt the altar of the Lord with 12 stones, one for every tribe of Israel. And he says, now I want you to, to take the bowl, he cut the bowl up, put the bowl on the, on the wood. And then he says, I want you to dig a trench now around these rocks. And then I want you to dump um, some water on top of the offering. And then I want you to do it again. And then I want you to do it three times so that the water even fills the trench that's around it. Now these guys are calling out for Baal all day long and nothing's happening. And what I like about this is in verse 36, it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, not Jacob, Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all the things that you have heard. So hear my prayer, O Lord, that these people may know that you're the Lord God and that you've turned their hearts back to you. Ah, Very simple prayer, right? I'm gonna make a point of that. It's a simple prayer when we get to James. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stone, the dust, licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their face and they says, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, at the bottom of this hill, the creek is still there to this day. That runs after all these years. You can't see it from this vantage point, but I know where it is. It's more to the left. Then Elijah said, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them go. So he seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he executed them there. And then he begins to pray. He prayed seven times. Uh, that water would once again return. Remember, he said, Ahab, not gonna rain until I say so. And now, we, now that we got things straight on who's God, now I'm gonna pray again, because now I'm gonna say so. So he prays seven times, and he sends his servant out to look over, see if there's any rain clouds gathering over the Mediterranean. Keeps coming back, says, nope, 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 nope. But the seventh time he came back, and... Um, um, verse 44 came to pass the seventh time he said well there's this cloud out there small it looks like a man's hand rising out of the sea so he said go say to Ahab prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you and it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain so Ahab 
rode away and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and girded up his loins, and he ran ahead of Ahab. Oh, would I have loved to see that. He's in a chariot. <laughs> and Ahab's out running a chariot. You just see Ahab running by, you know, uh, to the entrance of Jezreel. All right. Um, turn with me to James in the New Testament, chapter 5. It's how James chooses to close his writing. Verse 16. Confess your trespasses or your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like yours. Now this is important because we think, oh yeah, he was taken up to heaven in a chariot, uh, he had all these mighty miracles. What I didn't read uh, in the next chapter was he brings uh, a woman's son back to life. Um, the mighty miracles of Elijah that he had and the anointing that was upon him. James makes, makes it clear. And one of the points that I wanted to make in the Old Testament, it was simple. It was a simple prayer. And it says, Matt, Elijah was a man like a nature like ours. What does that mean? It means you're no different than he is. He was a man that God used. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Jesus says the same thing. Now, as we get into Revelation, this should get our attention because three and a half is a very significant period of time when you're studying the book of Revelation. And he prayed again and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced it. Before I take you to Revelation 17, um, I need to take you to Revelation chapter 11. So turn there with me, please. Elijah never died. Elijah, who took his place, he said, well, the Lord's getting ready to take me home. He got raptured. And he says, what do you want? And Elisha said, I want double what you got. (laughs) I want a double portion of what you got. What you got, I want. Matter of fact, I want twice as much. He says, well, that's asking quite a bit, but I tell you what, if you see the Lord take me out of here today, then the Lord's gonna answer your prayer. And we have the chariots of fire coming down, taking Elijah up. Elijah never died as as a natural man. So we find in Revelation 11, Uh, Two witnesses, and again, the Lord always leaves a witness of the gospel. He always does. Right now, it's you and I. Um, We're supposed to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Good place for an amen. Amen. Especially now, guys, because with people are being open and they're wondering, they're asking questions. I got a phone call that I got to make this afternoon from somebody that I hadn't heard from for 30 years. And I'll be calling him. He says, what's going on right now? I just want your opinion. Well, he's going to get more of my opinion. (laughs) But I look forward to the phone call. But in Revelation 11, uh, it talks about the two witnesses. The church has been raptured. And then, for the first three and a half years, immediately after we're raptured, Moses and Elijah are going to show up. I'll give you a biblical reference to what I just said in a second. 
But first of all, here in Revelation 11, it says, I will give power to my two witnesses, verse three, they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Question, how much time is 1,260 days? Exactly three and a half years. And they'll be able to do supernatural wonders. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands standing before the God of all the earth. Now this is a prophecy. This prophecy comes from Zechariah. And basically, it's, it's a, an olive tree, and it has two um, tubes going out from it, and it's a continuing flow of oil into the lampstands. And the idea here is, is oil is emblematic or symbolic of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they have the ability to do miracles at will unrestrained by the Holy Spirit. That's what the prophecy, in Zach- if you're taking notes in Zechariah chapter four, verse two. As, if anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Notice, they shall have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Again, how long is their prophecy? Three and a half years. So all of a sudden we have the same Elijah from the Old Testament, not allowing it to rain for three and a half years. James tells us he's an ordinary guy and now for the first three and a half years what's going to be happening is the formation of a one world religion. Um, They're gonna be killed, it tells us in verse seven, when they finish their, well let's read what they could do. Um, No rain will fall in the days of their prophecy. They have power to strike water to turn it into blood. Now, who does that sound like? No, Charlton Hessen. But close, close enough. To strike the earth with plagues as often as they wanted to. And when they had finished their testimony, and this is true for all of us, uh, we talked about this on Wednesday, when your number's up, your number's up. Um, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And we'll go verse by verse when we get to these chapters. Now, if you're taking notes, remember um, back in Matthew 17, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as snow And verse three, and behold, Moses and Elijah show up and appeared to them. I'm not dogmatic about Moses. I personally feel that's who it is. If you think otherwise, fine. You are wrong, but that's fine. (laughs) I think this is a staff meeting that's taking place. All the guys wanted to talk about was Elijah and Moses to the point that the father had to speak from heaven and basically say to Peter, shut up, Peter. This is my beloved son. It's about him, not Moses, not Elijah. But the fact that we have him in the Old Testament, we have him in the New Testament, and now we have him yet future. Jesus said as they walked down a hill, I tell you truly, Elijah has come and he is coming, future tense. Where? Here in Revelation chapter 11. 
Now, the fact that I'm adamant about Elijah, this is how the Old Testament ends if you're taking notes. It's the book of Malachi, chapter four, the last two verses in the Old Testament says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the grateful, great and dreadful day of the Lord. He's going to come before. So as I think it through, and if the Lord is always leaving a witness, then we have the church age, we're raptured, and these two guys show up because we know that Daniel 9 verse 27 says that the Antichrist is gonna make a covenant with Israel for seven years. And Jesus said, Matthew 24, in the middle of that period of time, the event known as the abomination of desolation, that what's going to take place is um, we have that dividing point where we have now the great tribulation. But we have the Lord always leaving a witness, but now they're killed. So how does the gospel get carried on after these two guys are gone? Answer, turn the page, chapter 14, and we read in verse six that now he's using an angel. It says, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. He will always leave a witness. All right, let's go back um, to chapter two, Church of Thyatira. And get into, I wanted to talk about Jezebel and Elisha and how the Old Testament does tie together with the book of Revelation. So we made it down to verse 20. And what I'd like to do at this time is the Lord is saying, here's my problem, your doctrine. You gotta get rid of it and repent of it. It's like Jezebel. Well, what did Jezebel do? She introduced false doctrine into the land of Israel. But not only that, she went after the men of God that were prophets of God speaking the word of God. They had to go, but she was elevating the prophets of Baal until the great showdown on Mount Carmel. So the problem that the Lord has with this church um, is that the doctrine that came into Thyatira, which I believe is a Roman Catholic church, brought false doctrine into the church and um, in Ephesus, he commended them and he said, well, you got this going for you. Um, You're standing up against the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which is the hierarchy of people over people when it comes to the church. And then you remember that we, when we talked about Pergamos, verse 15, Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Well, Ephesians stood up against it, but by the time you get to Pergamos, they've embraced it. By the time you get to Thyatira, we have a hierarchy that is established. So I told you we would talk about the beginning. Where does Roman Catholicism, let's start with the papacy. I mean, where does that all come from? What are the roots to that? And the Bible has an answer for that. So let's turn to the book of Matthew chapter 16. I'll give you a second to get there. This is another place we always visit. It's called Caesarea Philippi. It is here where Jesus 
asked his disciples, well, who do people say that I am? And some said, well, some think you're John the Baptist, some think you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah or some of the other prophets. But in 15, he says, well, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I can almost see Peter's chest swelling out. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Roman Catholicism and the papacy says that Peter is the first pope. Where's your doctrine for that? Oh, Matthew chapter 16. It says right there that the Lord gave him the keys to the kingdom. Well, let's go back and do a little Greek wordage here. In verse 18 it says, and I say to you that you are Peter. The Greek word there for Peter is Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. That means a little stone. And he says, and upon this rock, well, that's a different Greek word, and it is called Petra. And we're talking, if any have ever been to Petra, we're talking big stone. So then he goes on to say, and I will build my church. What is uh, the correct teaching here is he's not singling out Peter for being the first pope. And the church is gonna be built upon Peter. But that is Catholic theology. I've been to Rome. I've been to St. Peter's Basilica. I've been, as you walk down there, you'll have a huge picture of Peter, and sure enough, he's got keys right here dangling in his hands. And um, that's where this comes from. So where was the papacy and the beginning of it? It all comes back to this verse right here. But all you have to do is turn the page to chapter 18, and um, now he's talking to all the disciples, not just Peter. He says, assuredly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, do you know that you have the power to forgive sins? Well, you do. How do you do that? Well, you say that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You're a messenger now. And if you believe in him and if you trust in him, uh, that he will wipe away your sins. And he'll give you a new heart and you'll be born again. And you'll go to heaven. So basically, by the words that you're sharing the gospel with people, that's what that means. You have power to withhold the person's sin. Well, you share the gospel with them. I say, I don't believe that. I believe there's, um, I got a coexist bumper sticker on my car. (laughs) You know, there's many different roads to heaven. Well, I got news for you. Your sins are retained because there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. So that's what that means. When it says, what he's telling the disciples here, what you bind on earth is bound on earth. Um, But it's the authority of simply the Holy Spirit working through you using God's word. Good place for an amen. But Peter is not the first pope. We've got a problem if he is because he was buried. (laughs) And celibacy is a part of the priesthood. And I'll get to that in just a bit. So, Um, we find that 
that's where the hierarchy, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, comes in. This is where um, I want to remind you, last week we talked about um, this book. And again, this is a classic. It's by Alexander Hyssop. It's called The Two Babylons. And I wish I had the rest of the day to share the information that's in it. It's a, it's a classic, and I'll be quoting from it in just a bit. But um, remember last week, we were talking about Satan's throne being in Pergamos? And I read this, but I want to read it again this week because it follows a pattern. Remember? Uh, from Babylon to Pergamos, but it's going to end up in Rome. Let me read it again for you this week. Satan's throne. The significance of this is found in Babylonian mysticism. The Babylonian priest, fleeing before the conquering Persians, we talked about this on Wednesday night, Babylon fell in one night, remember? They took, they took off and they settled in Pergamos. And then we showed um, um, Zeus's temple, it has its own museum in Germany. Their worship consisted of the deification of the emperor. Atticus III, king of Pergamus, 133 BC, was priest of this cult. And he willed his title to the Romans. The title of the Babylonian high priest was Pontifus Maximus, or interpretation, chief bridge builder, meaning the one who spans the gap between mortals and Satan, and his host, Julius Caesar, first assumed this royal priesthood under the Latin title, Pontifus Maximus. And then the divine honors were confer, conferred upon Roman emperors, and then later assumed by the popes. What is one of the subtitles of a pope? Pontifus Maximus. Well, my point is, we have, and what this book lays out so well, is just tracing it begins in Babylon, goes to Pergamos where Satan's seat was, and then it ends up in Rome. This is all history, do your homework, be a, be a Berean. All right, let's go back to um, Thyatira. Now he's gonna give them time to repent of the doctrine of Jezebel. He says, I gave her time to repent. Well, it's not just the papacy in a hierarchy of confessions to the priesthood. What I'm gonna put up on the screen right now is what I really think um, the Lord is asking them to repent of. So what I'm gonna do is put on 22 Roman Catholic doctrines and traditions, and I hope you're able to see them. And I'm gonna get sidetracked and really just um, dive into one, and that's um, um, the worship of Mary. But before we do, all what I'm about to read did not exist until 431. So this would have been after Constantine uh, legalized and um, the martyrism that took place in the first 300 years. Now it's changed. So what else is added to it? Well, infant baptism, the mass, purging sins, prayers for the dead, prayers to Mary, worship of images, declaring saints, mandatory mass, celibacy of the priest, and as time goes on, they keep adding more and more. You can see the dates. Uh, The rosary invented, 
the Inquisition, I'll be talking about that, indulgences sold, that's how St. Peter's Basilica got built, transubstantiation, uh, confessing to a priest, uh, reading the Bible, forbidden, in 1229, purgatory, 1438, tradition given authority, 1545, added many books, the Maccabees and Old Testament are just a couple, Mary born without sin, 1854. Popes are infallible, 1870. Mary can save you, 1922. And Mary's body never decomposed. These teachings are not accepted by Christianity because they're not taught in the Bible. Well did Isaiah the prophet say about these people, draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. This is the Jezebel that the Lord is talking about. And either you repent and get away from that or else. Now, again, I had to be so selective and I wrestled with what to share um, from this book. And so I'm just going to talk about uh, four things about Mary that comes out of Hyssop's book. And they are the four dogmas of Roman Catholic Mariology, number one, that she's the mother of God. Number two, the immaculate conception. Number three, her perpetual virginity. Number four, the assumption of Mary. And I'm just gonna read a sentence or two to describe from Alexander's book. The mother of God, um, the council of Ephesus encountered this in 431. Um, the definition was added the words as to the, the manhood immediately after uh, the, she was declared the mother of God. Um, Mary's status uh, and stated to venerate her. And so this was established in 431 that she was the mother of God. Number two, the immaculate conception. The tendant of Mariology holds that Mary at her conception was sinless. Well, that goes against the scripture. All have sinned. Uh, she called Jesus her Lord and Savior. Um, immaculate means preserved from original sin according to the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia of Theology. No statement of Mary being free from original sin is found in the West before 1000 AD. It was not until 1854 that Faith in Mary's immaculate conception was taught as an official church dogma. All right, number three, her perpetual virginity. According to Roman Catholic Mariology, Mary was always a virgin. I've got news for you. Just read the gospel. Crowds were gathered and they come up and say, hey, Jesus, your, your mother's here and your brothers and sisters. <laughs> they have a tough time with that one. Before, during, and after giving birth to Jesus, the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia of Theology admits that the formula of virginity before and after giving birth did not come until the 17th century. All right, the um, assumption. The assumption of Mary teaches that Mary, when she died, was taken up, uh, assumably by body and soul, into heaven. It was not until 1950 that Pope Pius XII defined the doctrine of Mary's bodily assumption into heaven. 
And finally, Mary's role in salvation. Another element of Roman Catholic mythology is the belief that at the conception of Jesus, Mary entered into a spiritual union with him. Pope John Paul II discussed Mary's place in the plan of salvation in a book, Redemption Matter, the special presence of the mother of God and the mystery of Christ and the church. This is a fundamental dimension emerging from Mariology of the council. And so I want to read just one sentence from page 93, which I have marked right here. And getting, when we talk about Babylon and Mary being the mother of God and venerated, this didn't start with Mary. No, we go all the way back to Egypt and we follow it to Babylon and we find the traditions after Constantine got changed and where they came from. So let's just start with Christmas after Constantine was saved. That Christmas was originally a pagan festival is beyond all doubt. The time of the year and the ceremonies with which it's still celebrated proves its origin. Now in Egypt, the son of Isis, the Egyptian title for the queen of heaven, this goes all the way back to Egypt, was born at this very time, about the time of the winter solstice. The very name by which Christians popularly known among ourselves, we call it Yule Day. That's where it comes from, all the way back to Babylon, uh, provides at once its pagan and Babylonian origin. Yule is a Babylonian name for infant or little child. Uh, and that happened to be on the 25th of December. I wish I could share more and more, but it's just page after page of the similarities and that every one of these world-conquering empires had some sort of Isis or Diana that was a mother or worshipped as such. All right. Um, I need to start wrapping this up here, so let's go to, let's go to verse 21. We're almost through. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not. Indeed, I will cast her into the sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent. I will kill her children with death, and the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So here's the order of events. A space of time. A space of time is the idea that the Lord has patiently dealt with this false religious system for over a thousand years. And there has been no real change down through the centuries in this system. In fact, Rome boasts that she will never change. Uh, Semper idem is always the same, means never changing. Well, that's certainly not true with this Pope. And now the last part that we talked about is what is the fate of Roman Catholicism. We're told right here. It actually says they're gonna go into, and I take this literally, the great tribulation. Now I wanna contrast this 
uh, if you look at chapter three in the Church of Philadelphia and contrast um, this with the church, verse 10, because you have kept my commandment to preserve, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world. What hour of trial has come upon the whole world? And no, it's not the pandemic. And that's child's play compared to what's coming. But what is gonna be a trial for the whole world? Well, the great tribulation. Nothing like it before, nothing like it after. What does he say to the church of Philadelphia? Don't worry about it. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna make sure, I'm gonna keep you from that hour. Well, Lord, how in the world are you gonna do that? It's called the rapture. And the rapture, in my opinion, is so close right now with everything that's going on. And um, we need to know who we are and be able to explain biblically from a biblical perspective who's gonna stay behind because many who are holding to these doctrines for salvation, doctrines of Jezebel, what is, what is salvation? It's, it's uh, salvation can only be by grace alone, through faith, alone in Christ, alone according to scripture alone, and God alone be the glory. Now there's a place for an amen. That's a simple gospel. But when you add all these other things you're adding to the scriptures, and the Lord says, either repent or else this is what's gonna happen. The Roman Catholic Church will go into the great tribulation. Um, turn with me to Revelation 17. Basically what happens when the Antichrist comes on the scene, and there'll be, I would say, millions of people who call themselves Christians that are gonna say, what happened? Some of them will have some idea because some of you have been witnessing to them. But we have people who call themselves Christians, but there's all these other Christians that are all of a sudden not here. Well, again, the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. But he also, this is the second most important book that I'm gonna hold up today. It's written by Dave Hunt, and it's called The Woman Who Rides the Beast. And now we're gonna explain what's going to happen. In a nutshell, when we get to 17 and 18, I promise to go into more detail. For the first three and a half years, uh, according to Revelation 17, let's pick it up in verse one. By the way, 17 and 18 is simply adding detail. Um, This is not in a chronological order. It's adding detail of what's taken place in the chapters before it. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me and said, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Roman Catholicism is on every uh, country in the world. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. Now we're getting back to Jezebel and the false doctrine. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead was a name written, check this out, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots of the abominations of the earth 
And this is John talking. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the martyrs and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw it, I marveled with great amazement. And the angel says, why are you marveling? He's marveling because he says, this is supposed to be the church, but what they're doing is killing Christians. I promise this is just one sentence long from Dave Hunt's book that talks about the slaughter of the Serbs and also the, uh, the, um, the Inquisition. Uh, they weren't, unlike the Germans who were interested in, in killing the Jews quickly, it wasn't so with the Roman Catholic Church. The priests and the bishops participating uh, took great pleasure in torturing before killing. Most of their victims were not shot, but were strangled, drowned, or burned, or stabbed to death. Um, I could go on, I'll just give you the numbers of, the, of just the Serbs. Estimates of the number of victims exceeded a million. This is probably a realistic figure. The Yugoslavia, in its war crime trials, estimated that 700 to 900,000 victims were tortured and put to death. So when it's talking about uh, the blood of the saints, if you do your history, the Inquisition, then you know that this is a fact of history. So John is looking at this institution and he's going, but they're the church, but they're killing the church. We have the definition, the definition of the beast, it's already cleared. Um, if you get to verse 18, it tells you who the 10 horns are but also who the woman is. I'm quoting this from J. Vernon McGee. This is a frightful scene. The wild beast has previously been identified as the Antichrist. So we have a picture of Romanism, the Roman Catholic Church, locked into with the beast. So what do we have? We have a one world religion and we have a one world government, but not for long. We read that the Antichrist ruling over the restored Roman Empire. The woman is identified in verse 18. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. The woman is a city. And the city is Rome, the religious capital of the world. She is religious Rome, which at that time would have inherited all the religions of the world. Now, I'm glad he says this. You see, all true believers will have left the world seen at the time of the rapture. This includes all true believers. I have discovered there are many true believers in in Romanism, in liberal churches, and even some very weird religious systems. (laughs) All genuine believers, regardless of what church they go to, will be raptured. This will... Uh, leave a church on earth that is totally apostate rather than being the bride of Christ. Here we have, um, God calls it uh, the harlot. All right, we only have the promise left, so let's go back and read it and I I will let you go. I can't let you go. I have to show you my two short video clips, but you'll thank me for it. Give you something to talk about over lunch, I guarantee you. So, um, but 24 and 25, 
deals with what I just said here, and I do want to make this clear so you don't think. I want, I want to be known for solid doctrine and not somebody that's um, taking pot shots at Roman Catholicism. Just want to speak what the Bible says about it. And this are, are those that, some of them, in verse 24 and 25. But to you I say who do not hold this doctrine of Thyatira, as many of you who have this doctrine and do not know the depths of Satan, as they call them, I'm not going to put on you no other burden. And then he goes into the promise. All right? Um, the first one is only two minutes long, and the next one is three minutes long. So the first video that I'm going to show you is, and I'll ask the question, so how close are we to a one-world religion? What I'm going to show you is um, the World Government Summit that took place in Dubai last year in March, and what you're going to see is the Pope participating in it via live stream. The subtitles will be underneath. Go ahead and play that, please. Okay, I went online and I looked at a picture of every one of these people, over 220 of them. They're CEOs, half of them were Muslim, and they're, they're called the World Government Summit, and he's basically throwing himself in line with them. And um, this last one, this one would pertain to a one-world government. The next one is going to pertain to him being in the United Arab Emirates last year, and 180,000 people show up. Half of them are Muslim. That's what you're about to see next. This is for the one world religion. Today, uh, we have uh, for the first time more than 130,000 people attending a public mass in a stadium in the Arabian Peninsula. This is something never seen on earth and this is the merit of the leadership of this country. It's really overwhelming. I don't know. My heart just pounded. Masayang masaya. Walang pagsidlang kasayahan yung aming naramdaman. I was flying. <laughs> flying out from this world. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'll close with the promise and I'll just read it and let it stand for itself. I know I went over today. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter vessels shall be broken to pieces, as I also received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. What is the promise? The works of Christ are in contrast to the works of Jezebel. The works of Christ are wrought by the Holy Spirit. We overcome by faith and not by effort. I give power over the nation was explained by Paul when he wrote to the Corinthian believers. You want to jot this one down in case you're wondering what you're going to be doing during the millennium. 1 Corinthians 6.2. Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is a reference to the millennial reign of Christ in which believers are to share. I will give him the morning star. Jesus is a bright and morning star. 
See Revelation 22.16. Christ's coming for his own at the rapture is the hope of the church. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The children of Jezebel will not hear, but the true children of the Lord Jesus will hear, for the Holy Spirit has given us ears to hear. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close with prayer. Lord, it's a lot to take in this morning. And again, Lord, we're grateful that we can meet as, as one body. And I know I snuck in a little extra time this morning. Lord, just give us those ears to hear. Give us a biblical perspective for your purposes and plans. So, Lord, dismiss your people as we go out this morning. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Only two minutes long, and the next one is three minutes long. So the first video that I'm going to show you is, and I'll ask the question, so how close are we to a one-world religion? What I'm going to show you is um, the World Government Summit that took place in Dubai last year in March. And what you're going to see is the Pope participating in it via live stream. The subtitles will be underneath. Go ahead and play that, please. Okay, I went online and I looked at a picture of every one of these people, over 220 of them. They're CEOs. Half of them were Muslim, and they're, they're called the World Government Summit, and he's basically thought himself in line with them. And um, this last one, this one would pertain to a one-world government. The next one is going to pertain to him being in the United Arab Emirates last year, and 180,000 people show up. Half of them are Muslim. That's what you're about to see next. This is for the One World Religion. Today, uh, we have for the first time more than 130,000 people attending a public mass in a stadium in the Arabian Peninsula. This is something never seen on earth and this is the merit of the leadership of this country. Overwhelming. I don't know. My heart just I was flying. <laughs> flying out from this world. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'll close with the promise and I'll just read it and let it stand for itself. I know I went over today. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter vessels shall be broken to pieces, as I also receive from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. What is the promise? The works of Christ are in contrast to the works of Jezebel. The works of Christ are wrought by the Holy Spirit. We overcome by faith and not by effort. I give power over the nation was explained by Paul when he wrote to the Corinthian believers. You want to jot this one down in case you're wondering what you're going to be doing during the millennium. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. 
Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is a reference to the millennial reign of Christ in which believers are to share. I will give him the morning star. Jesus is a bright and morning star. See Revelation twenty-two sixteen. Christ's coming for his own at the rapture is the hope of the church. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The children of Jezebel will not hear, but the true children of the Lord Jesus will hear, for the Holy Spirit has given us ears to hear. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close with prayer. Lord, it's a lot to take in this morning. And again, Lord, we're grateful that we can meet as, as one body. And I know I stuck in a little extra time this morning. Lord, just give us those ears to hear. Give us a biblical perspective for your purposes and plans. So, Lord, dismiss your people as we go out this morning. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.